This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Welcome, everyone, to our Saturday morning program. Uh, I was thinking uh, as we uh, ended Zazen and did the Hymn to the Perfection of Wisdom chant that the perfections, in particular, the perfection of uh, wisdom and the perfection of kashanti or patience are very much part of my uh, this this talk. And uh, I'll just say a little bit about the talk title. Uh, this week, Jess asked me, you know, what's do you have a title for your talk as she was posting it online? And I said, mm, I said first I said, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. And then uh, and then it kind of came to me like just in a flash, this feeling of well, you know what I really want to talk about is this this teaching in Buddhism, the teaching of no coming and no going. And just the title of that, just the teaching, not any any thoughts about it or uh, just just those words actually came to me. So I said, yes, well, well I'll, that's what I'll talk about. And uh, that was, I don't know, maybe a week ago. And then uh, one thing led to another and I didn't really, th it was kind of like just... Uh, bubbling around under the surface and uh, little little phrases and stories would come to me through that th throughout the week so this talk is uh in many ways i think this talk is um a talk of coming out of coming out of a pandemic which is kind of a weird thing to say given that there's been like coming out and going back in and going <laughs> this feeling of uh, flux and change and stagnation and then sudden change and starting and stopping and so all of that together I think is where this talk comes from uh, not to mention just a lot of changes in uh, at Austin Zen Center in people's lives uh, a lot of feeling of people moving to the next phase of their life, moving into, you know, moving out of state. Many long-term practitioners in our community have, have appeared to go. <laughs> and then they appear to, to be here. <laughs> and then they appear to go. And so in this flux, um, how do we, of, of what appears to be leaving, um, there's also what appears to be arriving. So many new people coming and being curious about the Dharma, uh, wanting to jump in and, you know, getting really excited and just the energy of both of those, the coming and the going and the feeling of both stagnation and then flux and flow and change. And then with this recent invitation to, for me to uh, go to San Francisco, um, another big kind of terrifying change looming in my own life. So I would just say that this Dharma talk actually is like a Dharma talk to myself. Maybe you can take it as that. And uh, I'm taking you along for the ride. <laughs> so in this teaching of no coming and no going, um, and I'll, you know, speak more, a lot more about that. But there's this, uh, a lot of times this teaching is brought up in relation to um, death and dying as a teaching on how do we be with what appears like, uh, you know, going, like really ultimately going, right? Death, 
the ultimate end. And there's a koan uh, that I'll start with on this teaching where, uh, let's see, I'll just read the koan. Just before Ninakawa passed away, the Zen master Ikkyu visited him. Shall I lead you on? Ikkyu asked. Ninakawa replied, I came here alone and I go alone. What help could you be to me? I can all understand that feeling. What help can you be in this? You know, I'm alone. You know, I, and this is an experience that we all have, whether it's about ourselves or about others, that somehow they, uh, they or we uh, appear and then we disappear. And so what is this, what is this, uh, uh, how do we, how do we relate to that? And how do we practice with this appearance of arising and ceasing? So with Ninakawa's, you know, comment, you know, it sounds like he's pretty, you know, set. It's like, well, you know, the fact of the matter is I, I'm, I was born alone and I will die alone. And then Ikkyu answered him and said, if you think you really come and go, that is your delusion. Let me show you the path on which there is no coming and no going. And with these words, and maybe I would say the way that Ikkyu said them, or the presence of mind that he brought to the situation, or something, something maybe ineffable, you had to be there maybe. <laughs> but with these words, Ikkyu had uh, revealed this path so clearly that Ninakawa smiled and then passed. Mm, what a wonderful story. So this story and the idea, this this teaching of no coming and go, no going, you know, is a, really a deep teaching in our prajna paramita literature. So we chant the Heart Sutra, and <laughs> I say we've chanted the Heart Sutra a lot this past two years because you know when we were meeting in the online zendo for morning service, we just chanted the Heart Sutra in English and in Japanese, day after day, reminding us of this teaching. So oftentimes uh, taken as the teaching of emptiness and uh, of emptiness uh, somehow, you know, in relationship to form, you know, form is form, emptiness is emptiness, emptiness is form and uh, form is emptiness. It's neither emptiness nor form. <laughs> So in this teaching of emptiness, in these perfection of wisdom teachings, we chant Shariputra, all dharmas, meaning all things that appear and disappear. All dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease. They are neither defiled nor pure. They neither increase nor decrease and then goes on, given emptiness, there's no form, sensation, perception, so it goes through all the aggregates. And it goes on to say, there is neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, and by the way, no attainment. <laughs> With nothing to attain, a bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, and thus the mind is without hindrance. 
Well, that sounds great. <laughs> no suffering, no hindrance. Yay, bring it on. But this isn't always how it feels, <laughs> right? This is not our experience in our day-to-day -day life. Maybe we catch glimpses of that and we can settle into that and feel, ah, no coming, no going. But often, I would say most of the time, at least speaking for this one, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like upheaval and disruption and chaos and unsettledness and fear, terror even. So I guess this really, I want to bring up this question. How do we take this teaching of no coming and no going? How do we take that teaching up in our life as a koan? I wanted to uh, give one example of this, one uh, answer to this question of how we take it up. And then actually I'd like to hear at some point, maybe in the Q&A, you know, how each of you feel about this teaching. How do you take it up? What works and what doesn't work? You know, sometimes we take up a teaching and it's like, this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right in this moment, right? So how do we work with this as a koan, as this uh, question that we turn over, we keep coming back to, it's with this sense of, you know, in any practice of a, like a life koan, how do we take it up, let it be what it is without having to change it and see how it, you know, what it brings up in our uh, consciousness. So here's a uh, contemplation on no coming, no going by the late Thich Nhat Hanh. This body is not me. I am not limited by this body. I am life without boundaries. I have never been born and I have never died. Look at the ocean and the sky filled with stars, manifestations from my wondrous true mind. Since before time, I have been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand. Let us say goodbye, say goodbye to meet again soon. We meet today, we will meet again tomorrow. We will meet at the source every moment. We meet each other in all forms of life. How beautiful. I really love the, uh, the line, so laugh with me. You know, be with me in this moment, in this appearance of coming and going. So this teaching of no coming and going, it's, um, and the, and the way in which it doesn't, it doesn't feel true, right? In our day-to-day -day lives, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's no coming and going, right? This is a reflection in this, and again, in this, uh, literature of teachings, there's a, you know, this teaching on the, uh, what is sometimes called the, uh, the two truths. And uh, we just had a workshop recently by Kokyo and Choho on this, you know, this meditation on the middle way, which is, you know, steeped in examination of these, what are called the two truths, the absolute 
or ultimate truth and the relative or conventional or phenomenal truth. And in this teaching of the two truths, on the relative side, or of that, you know, in, in many ways, uh, you often hear of the two truths as being two sides of the same coin, right? ultimate and relative. And on this relative side, sure, it really does, we, you know, we speak about it as this thing wasn't here before and now it's here. So it didn't exist and then it does exist. And then when it stops existing, you know, it's gone, it goes away. And we feel this, really feel it deeply in our day-to-day -day experience, whether, and, you know, whether it's about ourselves or about the people in our lives, but really about all dharmas, all things. I say things as if, you know, we, know, we, we designate things. This is a thing, this is me, this is you. Things are separate from one another. And whether we're talking about our friends and we feel sadness, at coming and going, or we talk about people who are challenging for us, maybe like our enemies. <laughs> That's a strong word, but you know, uh, sometimes we may feel like, oh, this person who causes so much difficulty in my life, they're they may be going away, and I feel better, like somehow <laughs> they're they're away now, right? And then we feel maybe some uh, positivity about you know the the going part. <laughs> <laughs> but when it's a friend, right, or somebody we cherish, it's like the feeling of going is, uh, you know, the feeling brings up the feeling of sadness, which again is, um, you know, on the conventional level, in the conventional realm, this is an appropriate feeling, right? It makes sense. It makes sense to us. So how we speak about things, you know, using our language of conventional designations, shared conventions, conventional meaning that we all agree that this is what this means, that this is a glass and it has water in it. And who could dispute that this is a glass with water in it? I mean, you have no idea what I'm drinking, but it is water. It is. And I say it like with, you know, some confidence. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> So how can we say there's no coming and going? In a conventional way, you know, it's apparent. It appears that way. But in this teaching on prajna paramita, this perfection of wisdom, of the way things, uh, in some sense, you know, to say there's coming and going, it's not really how, it's not sort of how things really are. You can't stop there. So if you can't stop there, what does that mean? What does it mean that you can't stop at, well, this is uh, apparently true, so therefore it's true, right? It doesn't include a wider perspective, a perspective that includes both sides of the same coin, the ultimate truth of no coming and no going with the relative truth of things appearing to come and go. This idea, this uh, these teachings on emptiness um, can be really challenging. And the word emptiness, even just the word emptiness, sounds kind of depressing, right? Sounds like uh, a lack. And it is. It is actually kind of a lack, but not in a negative. It's not a negative, um, a negative way, even though it may sound like 
uh, nothing exists. It's not a, you know, there's nothingness. Emptiness can, you know, sometimes you can veer into like nothingness. And it's really not about nothingness. Even the words like, oh, I'm feeling empty. I feel so empty. Like that sounds really harsh, right? And very negative, uh, kind of depressing. Now, how things exist uh, in this way, this dynamic way, that they exist on these two, in these two ways, that there are these two truths, not just the, the relative that we, you know, kind of myopically get sucked into and, and it governs our, like what we think is true and not true, right? We feel it in our body really deeply. Um, Suzuki Roshi in uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he says, to live in the realm of Buddha nature means to die as a small being, moment after moment. When we lose our balance, we die. But at the same time, we also develop ourselves. We grow. Whatever we see is changing, losing its balance. The reason everything looks so beautiful is because it is out of balance but its background is always in perfect harmony. This is how everything exists in the realm of Buddha nature, losing its balance against a background of perfect harmony. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in the form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, meaning, I think he's meaning the background of uh, these two truths, you realize that suffering itself is how we live, how we extend our life. So in Zen, sometimes we emphasize the imbalance or disorder of life. So if you see things without realizing the background of Buddha nature, everything appears to be in this form of suffering. But if you understand the background of existence, you realize that suffering itself is how we live and how we extend our life. So bringing up this, uh, um, the suffering that we feel when we are faced with turmoil, faced with upheaval or, you know, change, what is the awakened response to suffering in self, in myself, and in others? What is the appropriate response or the, uh, the Buddha? What's the Buddha response to suffering? It's compassion, right? to feel compassion, which is uh, in the midst of everything to have things kind of like, you know, compassion feels, uh, is it, is it a positive feeling? Is it uh, pleasant? Is it negative? Does it include everything? Sometimes a compassionate response and Pema Chodron talks about this compassion as a wound. It's an open wound. <laughs> that doesn't sound very pleasant. <laughs> And yet, what happens when we feel that open wound and we give it space and we turn to it? If we don't turn away from it, 
it's kind of like uh, how what happens when we turn towards um, a deep sense of grief. I was talking to somebody recently who um, lost a pet in a t in a terrible way, um, and just the. Uh, she said something like, you know, people may not really understand like how hard it is to like how painful it is to lose a pet. They're like, oh, it's, you know, it's a pet. We have pets <laughs> like pets. <laughs> For those of you who have, uh, you know, cats or dogs or goats, chickens, <laughs> you know, right? This bond is is vast and wide. And when there's death, especially in you know, really heart-wrenching ways, the grief that comes is almost unbearable. It's almost unbearable. And and yet, all of us know this, that when we, you know, sometimes, you know, when we can turn away <laughs> from pain and suffering, we we do. We, we you know, we have strategi strategies for how to, like, ward off feeling, uh, the sinking feeling of depression or the sinking feeling of um, despair right and then there are times when we are we can't turn away we just um, due to the conditions due to the situation it's happening right now pain and suffering are coming up in this moment the grief comes up and we have no choice sometimes it takes that it takes having no choice but to turn towards it instead of away and at that point, it feels like our world and everything we love inside, it just feels like a crumbling, a collapse maybe. But if we stay with it, what happens? We may cry, we may sob, but when we stay with it and turn towards our own grief and fall into it, we let ourselves fall into it, where does it lead? Anyone want to say where that leads from your experience? Hey, this is Mary. I just, I lost my mother this summer and turning towards it while she was dying, you know, over the course of several years with Alzheimer's, there was a turning towards and opening to it and loving of her that happened in the moment of being with her to the extent that I could be and the extent that she could be. Um, and so in grief, um, I find this love that arises, yeah. turning towards all that we were and all that we continue to be and feeling that timeless sense of her with me. Thank you, Mary. David. Thanks, Mary. I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, when we uh, experienced a serious trauma in our family, and I realized I couldn't control any of it, um, things that I thought I was supposed to be able to control as a parent but couldn't. Um, and when I accepted that 
that kind of loss and that grief of what was happening within that trauma. What came forward for me was um, greater connection with people. So it turned out one thing I could control, not that I'm trying to control things, but one choice I could make was if I'm in a space with another human, I can really be there and I can really listen to them and I can show compassion and be real and human with them by being there with my entire being and being in that moment completely. And I, through opening up to that trauma and that grief, I experienced incredibly uh, <laughs> better connections with humans. Mm-hmm. You, Not just humans. <laughs> just humans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Is this a shared experience? Yeah, I'm seeing some nodding. It's not something we seek. Oh, let me go get some big dose of suffering so that I can open my heart. (laughs) And like I said, you know, when we feel like there's something we can do to control, that's what we draw, we go there first. QN, yes. Yeah, the, a few years back, I lost a very close friend and uh, facing, I, I want to say something about the confusion in facing it, because after a few years, I, I think there's a there's sort of a coming to um, a sense of peace. And I agree with what David and Mary talked about. And uh, the confusion on the way there seems important because it's sort of uh, all the emotions that I went through, uh, which included deep anger. I, I was there with my friend when he died in a, in a terrible way. Um, and so many different emotions being faced, not just, just, not just the loss and just an uncontrollable uh, arising of emotions that just just come at came at me um and facing each of those individually uh, was very difficult was it was a uh it was a in some ways a ripping out of a feeling of control and um and just being able to take what happened and the confusion the confusion seemed important to me i think that's just what i wanted to say thank you thank you thank you very much for that Yes, confusion. <laughs> True. Uh, let's see. Bruce says etymologically, doesn't compassion literally mean suffering with or feeling with at least? Yes. Uh, and Choro, meaning experience, ancient Greek, pre New Testament, experiencing together, but strong sense of suffering comes to dominate. Thank you. So this compassion can include, uh, it's like a, 
it doesn't necessarily come as the first response to suffering, right? Confusion, anger, like frustration, the feeling of, you know, thinking that you should somehow be in control, but you're not. <laughs> and uh, you end up maybe hurting people around you with your own pain. And then you feel guilty. I mean, it's a messy, messy process sometimes. It's super messy, right? <laughs> uh, in terms of this, uh, the, um, yeah, compassion. Being able to feel with, to feel the, uh, maybe the immensity, the confusing immensity of something. And compassion, uh, there are many wonderful teachings on compassion. Sometimes people say that there's not very many teaching good teachings on compassion in Zen, like the Zen stories don't really talk about compassion. <laughs> and I'd say that that's uh, in, in sometimes in the sort of a conventional way of compassion, um, where we think of compassion as, you know, being soothing or being, um, you know, caretaking, like that kind of compassion. Uh, is not emphasized in the Zen literature, I would say. But um, being with, being able to uh, stand it, actually, right? That's a big part of compassion. Being, again, maybe we don't come there willingly. <laughs> we, we have to be dragged into like, there's no, there's no escape. And then, you know, through that no escape, sometimes we drop, we can drop into this feeling of boundlessness, the boundlessness of grief, right? The boundlessness of loss. We let ourselves fall into it and, you know, descend. It's like there's this feeling of descending into it. When you let yourself descend, harder to do than it is to say that, um, you may find this love this connection but only when you let go of trying to control norman fisher in talking about compassion one of the many places he talks about compassion i'm going to quote him here he says emptiness and compassion go hand in hand compassion as transaction me over here being compassionate to you over there, <laughs> uh, we've all been there before, <laughs> is simply too clunky and difficult. If I am going to be responsible to receive your suffering and do something about it, and if I am going to make this kind of compassion the cornerstone of my religious life, I will soon be exhausted. But if I see the boundarylessness of me and you, and recognize that my suffering and your suffering are one suffering. And that suffering is empty of any separation, weightiness, or ultimate tragedy. Then I can do it. I can be boundlessly compassionate and loving without limit. To be sure, living this teaching takes time and effort. <laughs> And maybe we never entirely arrive at it. 
but it's a joyful, heartfelt path worth treading. And then getting back to this ultimate and relative, the uh, teaching. In Mahayana Buddhism, compassion is often discussed as uh, in terms of absolute and relative compassion. Absolute compassion is compassion in the light of emptiness. All beings are empty. All beings are, by virtue of their empty nature, already liberated and pure. As the sutra says, suffering is empty and relief from suffering is also empty. But this would be one-sided and distorted. Relative compassion, so again, bringing in both the both sides, not leaving one side out. Relative compassion, human warmth and practical emotional support completes the picture. Absolute compassion makes it possible for us to sustain joyfully the endless work of supporting and helping. Relative compassion grounds our broad view of life's empty nature in heart connection and engagement. Either view by itself would be impossible. I'll say that again. Either view by itself would be impossible. But both together make for a wonderfully connected and sustainable life. In looking at these words, like the word of compassion and what's meant by compassion, you know, I think I've uh, talked about with other talks, I've talked about um, Pema Chodron has the uh, the term idiot compassion. I think it comes from uh, Chogyam Trungpa. But the idea of idiot compassion being kind of like being a helper <laughs> in the sense of like, let me go fix you. <laughs> let me take care of the situation in a way that's like, you know, um, there's something extra. It's not coming from like a open heart necessarily. Not that their open heart isn't there, right? In some ways, this teaching, um, the teaching of no coming and no going, uh, the teaching of emptiness is a deep trust in this open heart, right? It's a deep trust in our Buddha nature. And uh, we just heard last week, from a visiting teacher from the Nichiren school, Myoke Kane Barrett, talking about this Buddha nature. Right? This is the, the whole project of the Lotus Sutra, is how to trust that all beings without exception, without exception, uh, are Buddha nature. How do we tr turn to that and trust it, even when it doesn't feel it like that? <laughs> <laughs> when we think, oh, that person over there is, you know, uh, you know, does these things that make me feel uncomfortable or, or even worse, like I think they're, you know, active, actively harming, being harming, a harm in society, right? How do we go forward in relationship without dismissing that being as somehow unable to you know, that they don't have Buddha nature, right? The Lotus Sutra really takes this up. There is no such thing as an Ichantika, someone who is incapable or of ever accessing their Buddha nature. This is a really strong teaching. It's a really hard teaching uh, sometimes when we, when we feel like, well, what about that person over there? <laughs> 
or that political party or whatever, you know, whatever it is, this separation that we do, again, as a protective measure, right, to protect ourselves and to protect others. In all of this feeling of apparent, conventionally real suffering and turmoil, um, for myself, these last several weeks, uh, I've been uh, I've been moving uh, out of my house to do some construction work that's been long overdue, and so all the th- everything, all the things, all the tangible things in uh, in the house have been moved out <laughs> of the house, and they're sitting in a pod in the driveway, and then to be brought back in. And as you can see, I I am back somewhat. <laughs> I'm at home again. (laughs) But in this moving, it's like this turmoil, this feeling of uh, disruption and chaos, right? And the feeling of like wanting to manage, (laughs) like my manager parts are all over the place, like trying to manage, (laughs) which is exhausting. It's exhausting, right? So for my own well-being and my own uh, sanity, maybe, you know, the encouragement to practice patience. And patience is another paramita, kashanti paramita. It's the fourth of six paramitas. Uh, it's really, it's really hard. <laughs> I can say, especially when you want to control things. It's like, okay, I need to control so that I don't freak out or you know whatever you know, you know the turmoil. How do we deal with this uh, this turmoil? Right? How do we take up this teaching <laughs> in our life? Uh, kashanti. Sometimes patience is uh, we, the word um, forbearance comes up or endurance. Right? And uh, my good friend Greg Fain yesterday, yesterday, he texted me this passage, which I was like, this is perfect, perfect passage. He didn't even know what was going on in my life. or I mean, he does, sort of does, but he didn't, you know, it just kind of came out of this text exchange. And... Uh, it's also, uh, it's Thich Han speaking on Kashanti Paramita, and in particular, like what Kashanti refers to, what is the meaning of Kashanti, you know, translated as patience, sometimes forbearance. He says, no, it's not forbear- forbearance or endurance, like just this distinction of like, what does the, what's the feeling of patience? Uh, so he's talking about forbearance, and he says, forbearance implies you have to suffer a little bit in order to be able to accept something. If we look at the Chinese character for Kshanti, in the lower part is the character for heart. And in the upper part, there's a stroke that looks like a knife, something sharp that is a little bit difficult to handle. This is a graphic expression, this heart with this knife above it. This is a graphic expression of its true root meaning, all embracing inclusiveness. He goes on to say, if our heart is large and open enough, we can accept the sharp thing and it will not bother us. Something that seems unpleasant or disturbing only feels that way when our heart is too small. When our heart is large enough, We can be very comfortable. We can embrace the sharp, difficult thing without injury. So, kashanti, patience, is a quality of being 
that does not bring suffering. In fact, it allows us to escape the kind of suffering we experience when our heart is too small. How do we know when our heart is too small? Things hurt. How do we enlarge our heart? And this, uh, this quote, by the way, is uh, from the book on the Lotus Sutra by Thich Nhat Hanh called um, Opening the Heart of the Cosmos. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. And in it, he's talking about all of the Paramitas. And this is from the Paramita chapter on Kashanti. And then he, you know, goes on to ask this question. How do we expand our heart? Can we expand our heart without suffering? What stretches our hearts wide open? If everything going along according to the way we want it to go, we're in control, <laughs> you know, do we think that that's what we need to open our heart, <laughs> to make our hearts big enough to bigger, big and vast and boundless enough? to be able to uh, be with the suffering of the world and in ourselves and our own lives. Our heart needs to expand, you know, needs to grow, to accept everything as it is. Mm, hopefully, or e more easily, without anything extra. It's usually the extra that, that you know, we trip over. So this upheaval of any kind of upheaval in our lives, uh, the, you know, the trajectory of maybe creation, maintaining and destruction, right? This like constant things arising, existing, and then ceasing, arising, existing, ceasing over and over and over again. This upheaval. So like, like, uh, you know, in this the chaotic environment of like moving and like not being able to find anything. <laughs> Everything feels like it's been cut up into pieces and completely dismantled. And now, like, how to put it back together. It reminds me of our uh, practice of sewing uh, Buddha's robe. We take this perfectly good piece of fabric <laughs> and then we cut it all up into little pieces. <laughs> and then what do we do with it? We cut it all up and then we sew it back together by hand, meticulously, bringing our full heart and and body <laughs> to the process. But not only that, each stitch that is taken in sewing the Rakasu or an Okesa or a Zagu, all of Buddha's robes, every single stitch comes with, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma. I take refuge in Sangha. And it, you know, when I, after Myoke's talk, I had a number of discussions with people who, you know, told me how much of an impact her talk had on them and uh, that they had, you know, they were trying it out, trying out the chant. For those of you who weren't here uh, last week, um, Myoke is a Nichiren priest uh, who lives in Houston. And uh, <clears throat> in her talk on... Uh, this practice, she was quite open and vulnerable and talked about some really big challenges in her life. Again, not turning away, not uh, 
showing up appearing like, oh yes, everything is, uh, we live in this, you know, uh, realm of perfection, of emptiness, this perfection of wisdom, everything's fine. It's like, no, things are messy. <laughs> things suck. <laughs> they fall apart. <laughs> we get upset. We hurt people. <laughs> they hurt us. Right? People, people die. We feel loss. People are born. We feel hope. In Miyoki's talk, she talks about the chanting, this chant of the Nichiren sect. Nammo myoho renge kyo. What does it mean? What is the chant? Why do you chant it? Why would you chant it? It's an expression of <clears throat> the basically the fundamental message in the Lotus Sutra, which is that we all have Buddha nature. We all are Buddha nature, maybe even better to say. And when we have a, an ordination ceremony of any kind, there's this line in it, and you'll hear this line in a couple weeks when we do this, uh, we do a, a lay entrustment ceremony, which is a, an ordination ceremony. We hear this line, in faith that we are Buddha, we enter Buddha's way. In faith that we are Buddha, in trust that we are Buddha. Well, how do you get to trust? Is it something that you, you know, is it helpful to when somebody's struggling to say, well, you, you're Buddha. <laughs> Damn it, act like it. <laughs> no, no. That's where the compassion comes in. The feeling, really feeling, empathizing with, you know, feeling the suffering. Having a heart that has to stretch a little bit, right? This is how the heart becomes boundless. It has to stretch. And stretching is painful. I am. So this, this chant is almost, it's like a, a declaration or a, um, an expression of, you know, commitment or determination. And you can really feel this in, in Yoki's presence, this really strong, just grounded determination, this uh, assertion of trust, this, you know, it kind of feel, it feels like it's incredibly courageous. It's filled with uh, compassion and wisdom, it's determination that we are, uh, we are Buddha. That in our practice, we often forget. It's really a matter of forgetting. We forget and we fall into small mind. Right? And we not, you know, small mind is always there, small, small self, it's small self, large self, they're always there. And yet we sometimes we see, you know, it's all small self and the wider world or the wider self, the big mind is somehow obscured by the clouds and we forget it's there. And so this chant is like an assertion, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to say this chant. It's a manifest, I'm going to, you know, allow the manifestation of Buddha nature. It may be there, but may not be manifesting, right? We may not be, uh, we may not be able to feel it, um, much less embody it, right? But in this chant, we say, maybe despite, maybe because of all of the suffering in the world, the vastness of it, it's like a pledge, right? In some sense, a pledge, you know, not to uh, succumb to 
believing in the small self, that that's all there is, right? That conventional truth that appears and things come, that appears that things come and go, that, okay, that's conventionally true, but it may not be the whole story. There may be a bigger perspective, a bigger heart, a more all-encompassing practice. And that's, you know, maybe that's what gives us the strength, the courage to deep, just to be able to make that shift, turning towards as opposed to turning away. And believe me, I, I many, many times the feeling of like, we're just wanting to turn away. <laughs> Where's my blanket? <laughs> you know, it's like, how do I, uh, uh, you know, go inward and turn away. And sometimes that's the appropriate thing. We remove ourselves from a conversation where it feels things are, you know, may not be going so well. Uh, and maybe the most compassionate thing to do is to remove ourselves in that moment in a way to, you know, avoid doing harm. But it's clunky and we, you know, we bump around, especially we bump against one another in all of it. Uh, and when we cultivate this big, open, boundless heart, um, we can include that too. So I really like the uh, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh translates Kashanti. He doesn't translate it as patience or forbearance or endurance. He translates it as inclusiveness, which going all the way back to emptiness, Oftentimes you hear, and I've, I've, you know, in my own mind, I think of emptiness sometimes in this way, that when we refer to this emptiness, it's not a, uh, you know, it's, it's the lack of inherent existence, <laughs> right? But like, what is emptiness? You know, actually, in a sense, emptiness being the lack of inherent existence, it's a lack of a certain way of thinking of things as being fixed and solid and existing truly existing from their own side, right? Emptiness is an expression that is, it's, it's not that. It's not that things exist truly from their own side. It's that they, they lack that existence. That's why it's empty. It's empty of this, you know, fixed fixedness, this stuckness. And actually, like Kashanti being translated as inclusiveness, sometimes I think of emptiness instead of calling it emptiness, shunyata, sometimes it feels more appropriate to call it wholeness. All inclusive wholeness with nothing that can be cut out of it. Nothing is hidden. It includes everything. But we can't get stuck on it being one thing. That's where we, you know, that's where we get stuck, and we suffer. <laughs> we, we really feel that. So, in my own feeling right now, at least in this day, in this moment, when asking this question of how do we turn towards this, you know, uh, strange teaching of no coming and no going that flies in the face of what feels like it's conventionally the case. It's just true that there's coming. There is coming and going. How do we practice with this teaching, this perfection of wisdom teaching of no coming and no going? We turn to our heart. 
we turn to our vow, our commitment to allow everything, to have the patience to be with, to allow it, to allow all things, knowing when the pain comes, <laughs> this is, this, these are stretching, heart stretching pains. <laughs> Very challenging. But this vow, this is what we again and again and again, we come back to what is our vow? So nam yo ho renge kyo is a vow. Taking refuge is a vow. And I think I'd like to end with a, uh, one of my favorite poems by Katagiri Roshi called Peaceful Life. Being told that it is impossible, one believes in despair. Is that so? <sighs> it's impossible. But whichever is chosen, it does not fit one's heart neatly. Being asked what is unfitting, I don't know what it is, but my heart knows somehow. I feel an irresistible desire to know what a mystery human, human is. As in this mystery, clarifying, knowing how to live, knowing how to walk with people, demonstrating and teaching, this is Buddha from my human eyes. I feel it's really impossible to become a Buddha. But this I, this I, regarding what the Buddha does, vows to practice, to aspire, to be resolute, and tells myself, yes, I will. Just practice right here now and achieve continuity endlessly, forever. This is living in vow. Herein is one's peaceful life found. Thank you very much. Any uh, comments, thoughts, experiences you'd like to share of the uh, of this teaching? Yes. Okay. Hi. Um, thank you so much. That was um, very intense um, to listen to, and I'm just more of a reflection, I guess. I guess kind of like early on. In my spiritual practice, I learned about this idea of like staying present to physical sensations in your body and as a way to kind of, yeah, pay attention. And I realized that I've been doing that practice to try to end my suffering. Like if I stay present, it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. And that's actually very, very different than allowing grief to be and being at peace with this just unbelievably massive um, suffering that is like endless. So I guess, yeah, what I mean is like, it's just, I think it's kind of, um, it's really important to just allow it to be. And it's the difference between kind of closing your eyes and just opening your eyes really. And 
Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, that's kind of like a new way of uh, being with that. It takes strength, courage, willingness, <laughs> experimentation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's just our culture is so um, afraid of pain. And I think in a lot of my life has just been about trying to end negativity, being afraid of negativity. If I see anyone who's negative, kind of not liking them, if I see anyone in pain, trying to make them feel happy. And it just, it's like a process of maturity. I think this practice of Zen Buddhism, like going from being a child to being a grown up, where you're allowing really life to be as it is, not what you. Um, necessarily hope or want it to be and like ironically when you are really seeing what's happening for what it is then you are much more clear in how to navigate it but I think that like that's really what I took from your talk is like am I going to choose to see things as they really are or put on my Lavianco's glasses you know which which am I going to do and at a certain point the choice just like well obviously like I want to see the truth that's really what I want Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's beautiful. Absolutely, my experience. <laughs> Anyone else have any anything at all? It doesn't have to be about coming and going or suffering. <laughs> Mary, yes. Yeah, I was thinking about my my own journey of trying to turn towards and be with my mother in a compassionate way, and I just wanted to share my own kind of catching of myself and idiot compassion with her at times where I would show up, I would be there, but I wasn't really being there. And I have to thank my sister for helping me see when I wasn't there. She would say, you're here, but you have to let yourself really open. Aww, and, <laughs> and she said, give mom a kiss on the, on, on the cheek, hold her more, really be with her. Aww. And, um, and I, you know, I thanked her for, for, for helping me with that, supporting me, seeing my own being there, but not being there as right. being uh, this fear, um, avoidance kind of thing, you know. Yeah. And ultimately, when I relaxed into that, my mother relaxed. It was really quite interesting to see. I, so I just, um, so I had this sense of being compassionate by showing up, by being tangibly in there. <laughs> But I really wasn't open. My heart wasn't open until, and I and my I have to thank my I have to thank you. I have to thank my husband and all of my family members. We all mutually supported our each other in approaching it, yes. as opposed to moving away. And it and it's and it and we didn't always succeed, <laughs> but it was I think without a sangha, without community we don't often see ourselves do the idiot compassion thing. We need, we need so much help to stay with it. Yeah. So thank you for, for helping me with that. Thank you, Mary. And having had my, as you know, my own uh, foibles around trying to show up and be there for my own mother when she was uh, ill um, and many, many people helped me through that process, but I made very a lot of mistakes. 
So again, like in the midst of making mistakes, coming back to compassion for this one right. <laughs> and forgiveness, you know, to forgive ourselves for the mistakes that we make, right? Instead of, you know, sometimes we, mm, mm. we harm ourselves with guilt and shame, shame really very harmful. So thank you. Jess. Hello, everyone. Uh, yes, what a wonderful talk and wonderful peppering of, um, of commentary from everyone. I'm feeling like so warm and fuzzy about it. <laughs> and I don't have anything profound at all to say. But when you asked the first question about like, what does your practice of um, no coming, no going look like right now? Um, earlier in the morning, I went to get um, a rose bush, a bare root rose, um, you know, because I plant one every year. So why not? And um, so later, so this, so today I, I'm going to go out and plant it and prune my fruit trees. And the thought that I was filled with when um, picking out this rose bush and like looking forward to later in the garden um, was, I can't wait to hang out with grandma in the garden. Okay. And my grandma um, died last year and it was the first person who died um, like during my practice, close person who died during my practice, family member, you know, people have died before. And my relationship to that death was very different. I noticed it was really different, her passing and me sitting, feeling like I was sitting with it, you know? And I had a close relationship with her anyway. So I just thought, how cool, because when she was here, like what she was to me and our relationship was actually like a little bit more contained to like, her physicality and mine coming together and our voices talking and stuff. And so maybe it was like felt stronger. It was just different. And now it's kind of disseminated into like almost every time I see a flower, like I feel that same thing, like her essence. Um, so that that's what I was reminded of. Thank you. Thank you, Mako. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we we have this with, you know, when we're kind of when we're on the relative truth side of things, it's like, of course, this person is no longer here, right? But if we, we you know, if that's what we take as to be the truth and we live our lives with like, well, but, sh you know, she's not here anymore. It's like you would cut out exactly what you're talking about, this feeling of boundless love and, you know, connection in going out and buying a bare root rose, <laughs> planting it. You know, how beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing that. Yes, David. So when, um, for some reason, when you were on this topic, I kept going back to experience I had um, really in one of my first um, Zen classes with uh, John Grimes at, at, in AZC about 13, 14 years ago. Mark Bykowski was there, I remember. 
he was so freaking smart. <laughs> he knew everything. <laughs> I was like, who is this guy who knows everything? Anyways, um, but in that, um, and maybe some others were there. So if you were in that, in that class with John Grimes and Mark and me, tell me. But anyways, what I remember about, uh, it was, I think, like the Monday Night Book Group, I think is what it was. And um, I remember that he, I don't remember what we were reading or what we were talking about, but um, he opened the door to me that I could let go of the past. Mm. And he was the first person who gave me permission in my life to let go of the past. And um, that, I don't know why, but when you say no coming, no going, somehow letting go of the past was a gateway to me for maybe the middle way and maybe for no coming and no going. And, and I feel like I have experienced uh, glimmers of it just over the last, you know, since I had that moment um, and, and most, maybe most um, poignantly and maybe with some level of skill when, when my mom passed away uh, two winters ago and, um, and during all of the funeral and messy family memorial stuff and all that stuff and just being able to accept it and see it for what it was. And, um, and so anyways, I, I'm just making a big connection between no coming, no going, middle way, and um, somehow that door opening up for me with John saying, not, not only giving me permission to let go of the past, but also saying like, actually, that's kind of what we're about. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's kind of what we do here. Is we don't really deal, <laughs> we let go of the past and the future, it turns out. <laughs> it was great. I, I remember it so vividly. Anyways, thank you. And thank you for a great talk. <laughs> uh, yes. You know, somebody recently told me, um, you know how we, we store things in our, you know, we store things in our body, in our, in our heart, in our mind, right? It's our karmic, you know, the stuff of our conditioning. <laughs> And some of it, you know, comes from a really early childhood where maybe pre-linguistic, you know, we pre-verbal. And so we don't even have the words. Like when this, you know, this wounded, you know, part of ourselves that emerged, it was born, created, it is forged by some event, right? We don't have the words to describe it. It's like, and that makes us even more frustrated because we want to tell somebody, this is how I'm feeling, but like, bleh, I can't, I can't even come up with the words, right? It's like this, uh, you know, that, that sometimes it may help just to like put your hand on, on your heart or wherever it is that you feel it, maybe your belly or your throat, you know, maybe your head, your face, ah, yes, to hold, to cup your own face and say, you're living in memory. You know, just because it's like those little, you know, traumas or big traumas, you know, they carry through. And oftentimes when we're, you know, what, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, <laughs> halt, you know, when we feel those things, 
when we're depleted, we're not, you know, we're not at our, our fully functional selves, they come up more readily. The, you know, our past traumas, or hurts come up more readily. And when that happens, you know, what would it be like to be able to turn to it and be like, oh, I see you. I feel that, you know, the, you know, this feeling of like being able to do this silly thing. It seems silly. I mean, maybe it doesn't seem silly to other people, but for me, when I first heard this, I was like, this is silly. <laughs> but to be able to give oneself, you know, a big hug. And somebody told me once, your body doesn't know the difference between you giving yourself a hug and somebody else giving a, a hug. And I was like, is that true? But uh, yeah, try it out, you know? And then it's like when that old story comes up or the old uh, hurt comes up to say to ourselves, living in memory, not, in this, uh, not as an admonishment, but just as an understanding uh, to fill out the picture. Like, why is this happening? Why am I this way? Why am I feeling this way? It's like, oh, it not without, you know, going into details about like why it's this way or what happened specifically or how, you know, but just like, oh, I'm living in memory. So thank you, David. That's a very, uh, very true words. I see Bruce, Bruce's hand. Hey, Marco. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I've had some experience with coming and going uh, lately. Uh, but not just lately, uh, not, not just the four months ago when I moved uh, away from Austin, but recently I've gotten a couple of boxes out of long-term storage with scraps of things going back to high school. And it, 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 from time to time, I feel the weight of all of these pasts that I've left and, and looking back, sometimes it feels like all I've done is leave because there were all these notes and, and maybe it's, I mean, it's, it's a skewed sample, of course, um, because I tended to hold on to a lot of the, the kind notes I got when I left several places. So it's like, oh, we'll miss you. Oh, we'll miss you. And I d have I done nothing but just leave places in my life? Sometimes it feels like that, but also it kind of feels like I can't ever leave my my the, the choir in in Boulder that's that's meant and continues to mean so very much to me even though I haven't sung with them much in the past five or six years um, had a unveil premiered a, a new video last night and I felt so connected to them and then because it was a live premiere there was chat and so people were chatting hi oh it's great to see you you know I, I so I don't think you can leave that there's that um, Faulkner, William Faulkner line, like the past isn't, isn't dead. It isn't even past. Mm -hmm. So I, if, even if you try to leave, I don't think you can. And even if you stay, I don't think you can either because <laughs> staying doesn't mean things won't change. It doesn't mean that you can hold on to them anymore. Mm -hmm. So I don't even, I, and, and partly this may be just age where you, you know, the stage I am in my life where I can look back and, and see all these prior lifetimes um, since I was born. But I also, and, and I don't know if this is age or practice, but so many things I, I, I become less sure of, like, what does it mean to go? and What does it mean to come? And I don't know, it, it's, it's just all this big jumble, but to the extent that I can kind of relax about it or just, 
or just look at it, as people have said, you know, turn towards or face to the extent that you can in a given moment, then there's, there's some degree of relaxing into it and going, oh, well, maybe this isn't a situation like I was conditioned from a very young age to think that I can control or I can plan or I can solve, I can figure out like, boy, isn't it, isn't it kind of a weight removed to, to let go of that if you can? It's like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, sorry, sorry, no real wisdom there, but it's just, you know, personal perspective on, I don't even know, like, it's not just some teaching about coming and going that's saying there isn't any, it's like, I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm, it seems like I've always gone, but have I, and what does it mean to still be connected and have my heart in different places so that when I watch this video from Colorado and I go, ah, oh, why did I ever leave? How could I ever leave? It's like, well, it's, it's, I did um physically and i'm still connected in some way and it's just it really is an all of the above kind of practice or or reality maybe where i have this experience i'm this is fantastic because i feel connected and this is terrible because i'm not there and it's not one or the other yeah i, I feel con you know fantastic because i'm con connected and i feel awful because i'm connected <laughs> And, and grief and love, like this terrible loss, but wow, how lucky I am to have had this experience, to be able to miss something as opposed to not being connected or not feeling the connection. Right. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I remember being at Tassajara and like people, there's lots of coming and going. Like people, new students come, they stay for like a year or a couple weeks or a decade but like you know as a new student there when people would leave and i would get you know i'd get attached to people when they came and then they'd leave <laughs> like you know feel like my heart was being ripped out of my chest and after years of of this and then seeing how these same people who left like they come back <laughs> or maybe they don't you know they don't come back but like this feeling of uh no coming no go or, or just like well i don't know the not knowing you know we can get fixated on like the coming and going, the appearance. There are a number of comments and uh, I see Anne and Rob have a hand. Wow, there's a lot of comments. <laughs> uh, Anne and Rob, let me uh, get to you. And then maybe we can look at the comments and then uh, end. Um, so I often look for excuses to read my favorite poem. <laughs> this is... This is a, a, a good time to do that. Uh, and that's all I'm going to do. <laughs> Great. Because it talks about coming and going. And it's something that I've, I've thought about because I, I read this poem for the first time, you know, like 30 years ago or something. But it's, and it's a, a really popular poem by Rumi called The Freshness. Probably mm -hmm. a lot of you have read it. But it's, anyway, so here, here's the poem. When it's cold and raining, you are more beautiful, and the snow brings me even closer to your lips. The inner secret, that which was never born, you are that freshness, and I am with you now. I can't explain the goings or the comings. You enter suddenly, and I am nowhere again inside the majesty. Hmm. Thank you. 
sharing that. Beautiful. Thank you, Anne. Some of the comments in the chat. I see, welcome Tova. Ooh, is Tova here? Hi, Tova. <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Marco. Uh, did you, uh, well, for those of you who don't know, Tova was here like the weekend that we shut down back in 2020 <laughs> in, in like March, the last week, of, like the last weekend we were in person for Saturday morning program, Tova was here. And uh, as the Branching Streams liaison, uh, we'll be uh, seeing her here in person, in the flesh, uh, not too long from now in the end of April. In the, uh, let's see, in the comments, Joel says, sometimes I feel like there's a kind or quality of open heart that really can't arise in us without first having been completely heartbroken. Not to say that we should seek heartbreak, of course, but maybe it's not so great to try to avoid it either. Yeah. And then Bruce, there are certain plants whose seeds can't germinate without being consumed by fire and broken open. <laughs> yes, the fire poppies, for example. Stacy says, that's my observation too, Joel. Thank you for expressing that. Smiley face. Jane says, I really liked Mary's description of it as relaxing. And for me, facing grief has been a physical experience of muscles relaxing, not dissociation or aversion to pain, muscles tense. Relaxation as a whole body, physical manifestation of acceptance and acceptance being a gateway to peace. Beautiful. Rich says, wish you were here, Bruce. <laughs> Uh, Joel, I can relate to that too, Jane, a long, much needed exhale. And David says, I like the reframing of no coming and no going into what does it mean to come and what does it mean to go? Thanks, Bruce. Also, I always feel like you are in the Zendo with me, whether <laughs> whenever I'm there. We sat next to each other so often. Bill, thanks as always, Mako. Springtime is coming and going this week. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> Peace to all. So maybe we will end on that note. And uh, you know, the poem that I read is Peaceful Life. And Bill's uh, words, Peace to all. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you all very much for your practice. <laughs>